2: You're listening
3: to Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio.
0: Who is 18-year-old Kyle Rittenhouse, a hero defending law and order or a vigilante taking the law into his own hands? The jury will hear starkly different portrayals of Rittenhouse at his trial for killing two unarmed protesters and injuring a third during a turbulent protest against racial injustice in Kenosha, Wisconsin last August. Here are the prosecutor Thomas Binger and the defense attorney Mark Richards.
4: The evidence will show that hundreds of people were out on the street, experiencing chaos and violence, and the only person
0: who killed anyone was the defendant, Kyle Rittenhouse. It isn't a who done it, when did it happen, or anything like that.
2: It is was Kyle Rittenhouse's actions privileged under the law of self-defense.
0: The jury may also hear Rittenhouse's own words to a reporter on the night of the shooting.
1: Our job is to protect this business and part of my job is to also help people. If there's somebody hurt, I'm running into harm's way.
0: Joining me is Steven Wright, a professor at the University of Wisconsin Law School. So a 17-year-old drives half an hour from home across state lines to Kenosha with an illegal weapon, a military-style semi-automatic rifle. And joins a group of armed people. He shot and killed two men within hours. What are the different narratives that we're going to hear?
5: I think there are two narratives that have already started to play out. The prosecution makes the argument that Mr. Rittenhouse traveled across state lines, that he obtained a weapon, that he stayed out past curfew, and that he was basically here to cause trouble.
3: The defense
5: began their opening statements by showing lots of pictures of the protests, or as they say, the looting and rioting that were happening. And they want to portray a young man that was very much concerned about the Kenosha community, with which he had some ties. You know, they and many people who support him want to portray him in some ways as a hero, that he's a young man exercising his Second Amendment right to bear arms, and that he was defending property when the local government, when the police failed to do so.
0: So is the question going to be purely whether he fired in self-defense?
5: That's largely going to be the question. You know, there's no question that he fired the shot. The defense showed the jury several photographs, and these photographs portray Mr. Rittenhouse as a peaceful young man who ultimately was chased down and attacked. The question basically is who started this fight? There's a big debate about what happened before the chase. What's also in dispute is how much danger Mr. Rittenhouse should have felt during the chase. Should he have felt that his life was in danger to the point where he needed to use Lethal force to defend himself? Those are sort of the core questions at the self defense argument, especially that relates to the first man that was shot and killed.
0: What is the law in Wisconsin on the use of deadly force? So, Wisconsin, in some ways, has a very
5: traditional self defense statute that somebody can use lethal force if they believe that it is reasonable to do so to protect their lives or someone else. A large part of what we're going to ask the jury is whether Mr. Rittenhouse had a reasonable fear that his life was in danger and whether using that semi-automatic weapon to kill two people was reasonable under the circumstances. Wisconsin does not have a stand-your-ground law, but one of the things the jury can consider when determining the reasonableness of Mr. Ridenhouse's fear and the reasonableness of the amount of force that he used was whether he could have fled, whether this death ultimately could have been avoided.
0: So there is or is not a duty to retreat if you can?
5: There is no legal duty to retreat, but the way that the reasonableness inquiry works is that the jury gets to consider many different facts. And one of the factors that they consider, of course, is in this case, the decedent, how aggressive the person was or what was Going through Mr. Rittenhouse's mind at that moment. Another fact that they can take into account is whether Mr. Rittenhouse should have retreated. So there's no legal duty to retreat, but it's something that the jury should and can consider during their deliberation.
0: What about the fact that the first victim, he shot four times?
5: In any self defense case, the jury's going to consider the reasonableness of the defendant's response. And so in this case, You know, the jury will consider whether firing that many times from a semi-automatic weapon was necessary. But, you know, as a general rule, juries tend to be fairly forgiving once they've determined that a defendant's life was in danger. In my experience, they don't make a lot of differentiation between firing one time versus firing four times when somebody really feels that their life is in danger
0: there is a lot of video of that night and some video of him. Is that going to be a large part of the either prosecution or defense case?
5: I think it's going to be an essential part of the defense. The parties gave opening statements. The defense wanted to show several pictures and videos of what was going on that night. In particular, they selected some pictures and videos that they say Suggest that Mr. Rittenhouse was in danger, that he was being chased by people. I know among the more provocative photos are some of the photos of individuals with skateboards, winging, or trying to hit Mr. Rittenhouse. The state very much objected to those being included in the opening, but the defense was very adamant.
0: So as Rittenhouse ran away from the scene, a criminal complaint states that he told someone on the phone, I just killed somebody. Does that have any impact?
5: It it could. You know, once again, it could be evidence of what his state of mind was around the time of the shooting. You're absolutely right. I believe after the shooting of of the first decedent, Mr. Ridhouse got on the phone and called and told somebody that he, he had shot somebody. You know, that will be evidence to what his state of mind was at that time, around when he pulled the trigger, but it, it won't necessarily be dispositive of one issue.
0: Will the jury hear that video of Rittenhouse explaining why he was there on the night of the shooting? So it will probably
5: come in, but you know it may actually come in for the defense. Mr. Rittenhouse says a couple things, but he basically says, "I'm here to defend property and to defend human lives," but he also makes clear that he brought a med kit with him. And so that's been part of the defense narrative the entire time, that he was actually there to help to do good. In the video, Mr. Rittenhouse suggests that he brought the med kit specifically to help anyone who had been hurt. And he sort of says at the end, I also have a gun in case I need to defend myself while I'm helping. So, you know, I think for many people, that video is actually evidence that he came here to do good.
0: The biggest question in a defense is whether or not the defendant is going to testify. Do you think in this case, in order to show that he really feared for his life, that he should take the stand? In the United States,
5: the defendant almost... Always is the person who testifies last. They're the closing
3: act. And so
5: generally, defense attorneys don't make up their mind about whether a defendant will testify until relatively late into the trial. You know, there's always tremendous risk with putting your client on the stand. I suspect if the defense feels fairly confident based upon their witnesses and based upon the pictures and videos that they've shown that they've got a sympathetic jury, he probably will not testify. But you can imagine there's tremendous risk about putting a 17-year-old on the stand in this type of case. You know, the prosecutor, I'm sure, would be chomping at the bit for the opportunity to cross-examine a young man who came here, Uh, definitely for ideological reasons and ended up killing two people and wounding a third.
0: So that brings up two questions of mine. First of all, the look of the defendant. The jury is going to be staring at this teenager. He has a baby face. He doesn't look much like a killer.
5: And that's too, you know, that's obviously to his benefit. Um, You know, one of the things that I think a lot of people have been paying attention to is you know, he's a very Young-looking, I believe he's now 18. The the shooting happened when he was 17. But, you know, he has a very... He's a baby-faced, young white man, and the jury here, I think, is uh, predominantly, if not overwhelmingly white. So I do think that there's a possibility that some jurors will see themselves and see their children in him.
0: I was surprised that the jury is, except for one man, it does appear to be an all-white jury. That surprised me, that there's no racial diversity at all on the jury.
5: You know, the juries often reflect their communities, and uh, Kenosha is a largely white community. You know, my understanding that there were a couple people of color who were Who were considered. Um, You know, we don't know specifically who we weren't able to see jurors, and there hasn't been a lot of reporting about, you know, which jurors of colors were dismissed and why. But I wasn't terribly surprised that in the community like Kenosha, which, you know, is diversifying like a lot of Wisconsin, but I do think at least it's very much still perceived and very much probably is a majority white community.
0: Will the jury hear about his background, the causes he supported?
5: I suspect that it will. You know, part of the narrative that the state will try to build is that uh, Mr. Rittenhouse was, in some ways, a vigilante. He very much was a supporter of Blue Lives Matter. He had posted a lot on social media supporting police officers. You know, he also had recently graduated from sort of a junior police academy, something for teens where the police offer some instruction on young people on what law enforcement does. You know, I suspect those things will sort of very much come in. What I wonder will come in is, you know, he was a very adamant supporter of President Trump. I think he was very much influenced by the president's language during this time where the president was villainizing many peaceful peaceful protesters. That may not come in, but I do very much think that, you know, his past support and his sort of adamant support of uh, Blue Lives Matter will most likely, the jury will most likely see it.
0: The judge banned prosecutors from referring to the men shot by Rittenhouse as victims, but he said defense lawyers can refer to the men as looters or rioters as long as there's evidence.
5: So obviously that's been one of the more controversial pretrial rulings that the court has made. I don't think it's all that unusual for defense attorneys to ask that the two men who were shot and killed and that the third man who was wounded, um, it's not unusual for defense attorneys at least to ask that those individuals not be called victims. You know, victims tends to be a very, very loaded word in our society. Um, You know, it implies to some degree that the individuals who were harmed were harmed as a result of wrongdoing. And, you know, in this case where self-defense is so pivotal to the question that the jury's being asked to decide, you can understand why the defense would want to portray Mr. Rittenhouse as the victim and these three individuals, two of whom were shot and killed, one who was wounded, that they were the aggressor. And so, you know, I wasn't terribly surprised that the defense made that motion. And the court had that has been their sort of long existing policy not to use the word victim for similar reasons. You know, I think what's more interesting is that the court did decide to permit the defense to potentially use the words you know, looters and rioters. What the court said is that, you know, if the defense ends up putting up enough evidence in the record that these individuals were engaged in looting or rioting or arson or things like that, then towards closing, the defense could use those type of words. Part of it's almost constitutional. The defendant has the right to present his defense. And part of presenting his defense is, you know, being able to portray, in this case, the two individuals that were shot, the one who was wounded, in this lens. And so the judge had to be particularly sensitive to not infringing upon uh, Mr. Rittenhouse's right to present a defense and his right to sort of present a narrative as he sees fit. Part of what makes this case interesting is that Mr. Rittenhouse, I think, wants to portray almost everybody who was there that evening as some type of threat. You know, I think Mr. Rittenhouse was inspired in part by the president's rhetoric that was accusing all protesters, all Black Lives Matter protesters in particular, as rioters and Antifa and as thugs. You know, the defense will point out that many of the individuals there that night were there in defiance of the curfew. The state is quick to point out that Mr. Rittenhouse was also there well past the curfew. So I think we're going to have to wait and see what exactly the defense will say about these three individuals. You know, one of the things about Wisconsin law is that the defense doesn't necessarily have to signal all the details of their plans. But at this point, I haven't seen any that these three individuals looters, or rioters. But that doesn't mean that, of course, the Rittenhouse team won't try to paint them all with the same brush.
0: Thanks so much. That's Professor Stephen Wright of the University of Wisconsin
1: Law School. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers.
0: Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. A historic confirmation allowed President Biden to flip the Second Circuit Court of Appeals. He now has three appointees on the Second Circuit, all women, giving the court a majority of Democratic appointees. And he has more seats left to fill. It's an important step for Biden in making an impact on the federal courts. During his administration, Donald Trump flipped the Second Circuit to a majority of Republican appointees. The Second Circuit covers New York, Connecticut, and Vermont, and is a chief venue for cases involving corporations and Wall Street. Joining me is Carl Tobias, professor at the University of Richmond School of Law. The Senate confirmed Beth Robinson to the Second Circuit this week. So tell us about her and why that's historic.
2: Well, it's historic because she's the first LBGTQ person to ever be appointed to the federal appellate bench. Uh, And she has been a judge for a decade uh, on the Vermont Supreme Court and is highly respected. And before that, she was an advocate for LBGTQ rights, uh, both in the state legislature and in the courts and won some major uh, victories on both fronts. Um, And so she is now going to sit on the Second Circuit, which, of course, hears many important uh, disputes involving all kinds of commercial and other matters. She already has great experience as a judge for a decade on an appeals court, and so she'll be able to do a fine job.
0: And her confirmation flips the Second Circuit back to a majority of Democratic appointees.
2: Yes, because Peter Hall, who died and whose position she is assuming, was an appointee of a Republican president. And so it does change that back. And so that's important to some people.
0: Biden now has three appointees on the Second Circuit, all women and he has the opportunity to fill another seat two more seats two
2: more For yes um for if you remember a couple weeks ago judge cabranas and judge pooler uh, both said they were intending to assume senior status so there are two more vacancies
0: Is it happening on the Second Circuit because for many years it was majority Democratic appointees and they were holding out until a Democratic president was elected?
2: Well, maybe to some extent, though Judge Cabrera is considered a pretty moderate judge, uh, and some even consider him conservative, but, uh, and Judge Pooler is one of the more liberal members of the court, I believe. But uh, I think that To some extent, that is what happened, but it has just been uh, a situation where people are now assuming senior status. Though in other uh, appeals courts, I think some of the Democratic appointees, for example, in the Ninth Circuit may have been waiting for a Democratic president to name their successors.
0: So Robinson received support from two Republican women senators, Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski. The Senate also confirmed former Virginia Solicitor General Toby Hightens to the Fourth Circuit, and he got support from four Republicans. Tell us about him.
2: Well, he had clerked for uh, Chief Judge Becker on the Third Circuit and Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg and then had taught for a long time at the University of Virginia School of Law and also worked in the U.S. Solicitor General's Office for a period uh, of two or three years and then has been teaching off and on at the University of Virginia, his uh, alma mater, and was appointed Solicitor General in Virginia in 2018 and won some big cases there, the one involving the Lee Monument and another big redistricting case in the Supreme Court. And so he's considered to be a consummate appellate advocate and certainly knows his way around the federal appellate courts. Uh, So he is a great addition to the 4th Circuit.
0: Do you remember how many circuits Trump flipped?
2: Three, I believe. I think 2nd, 3rd, and 11th.
0: And the 3rd and 11th, have there been any appointments by Biden to them?
2: Not so far, though there will be one because Beverly Martin from Georgia retired about a month or two ago. And so there's a vacancy there, and there's a vacancy in the Third Circuit for which the president nominated Judge Stark on the Delaware district bench uh, to that vacancy in Delaware.
0: Will that flip anything?
2: I don't think it's enough yet, um, because I believe Trump appointed four people to that court, so it may not flip yet, but it, it could in the future.
0: Carl, Lucy Coe, who's currently a district court judge in the Northern District of California, was nominated to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. Where does that nomination stand?
2: I believe she had a committee vote last week, and so she's on the floor. And so I think would be the next appellate uh, nominee who could be confirmed. And my guess is that that will happen perhaps later this week or uh, next week. Before they recess for Veterans Day, uh, though uh, I believe Jennifer Sung from Oregon for the Ninth Circuit was nominated before Coe, so maybe both of those will be paired like Robinson and Titans were. Uh, maybe uh, you know going leaving on Thursday uh, closure vote, but I haven't seen it scheduled yet. And then the Monday they come back, which would be the following week, the two of them might be confirmed together.
0: So in supporting Coe's nomination, Republican Senator Chuck Grassley said he wanted to note that he had reservations about her approach and reasoning in a number of cases. And one was a case about home worship during the pandemic that was later overturned by the Supreme Court. Tell us about that and whether that might have any effect on her confirmation votes.
2: Well, I don't think so, because I think Democrats have a majority, and she did uh, come out of committee. And Grassley actually supported her in 2016, when she was a nominee of President Obama for the Ninth Circuit. And so we'll see what he does on the floor. Um, But Senators Hawley and Cruz were concerned about the case, but she said she was following Ninth Circuit precedent, And the panel to which um, the parties appealed on the Ninth Circuit agreed with her, two of the appointees were Republican appointees, that she was just following circuit precedent. Then the Supreme Court split 5-4 with Chief Justice Roberts dissenting and the other Democratic appointees uh, agreeing. So it was a very close case. But in any event, the GOP senators were concerned that She was not sufficiently respectful of precedent, though she pointed out she was obligated to follow the Ninth Circuit precedent and uh, the issue of religious freedom and that she hadn't given it enough weight.
0: I read that last week was the busiest week yet for Biden's judicial confirmations.
2: Yes, there were, I believe, six district judges confirmed last week. And then the cloture votes for Robinson and Heightens were last week. So it was very busy. And this week is very busy because we had a hearing today for uh, six people, one Ninth Circuit nominee and a couple from California and one from Minnesota and one from New Mexico. So it has been busy. And then tomorrow, a couple people will be up um, for committee votes.
0: Who's the Ninth Circuit nominee?
2: Gabriel Sanchez uh, from California had his hearing today. He is on the intermediate appellate court in California, and he uh, served in Governor Jerry Brown's administration and was um, questioned today by the GOP senators about his role in Prop 57, which had to do with a system set up to um, release certain prisoners because of prison overcrowding in California. And GOP senators questioned him about that. Uh, And they also questioned him about his being an advocate and his policy preferences and that type of thing on the bench. And he very ably uh, and candidly said, I know the difference in being an advocate or implementing policy and being a dispassionate, neutral arbitrator as a judge. And I thought he gave very compelling testimony to that effect.
0: Was it so busy last week and this week because... The Democrats are deliberately trying to speed things up, considering the midterms are coming up and what happened in the elections yesterday.
2: Well, yes, but I think the the White House and Pre- President Biden and Senate Judiciary Committee have all been uh, moving as expeditiously and carefully as they possibly can uh, in light of the fact that there's a possibility the Democrats would lose a very razor-thin majority that they have in the Senate, and so they are moving quickly. As we said before, every two weeks there's a hearing with five or six nominees, as happened today. Uh, The White House had a whole list of new nominees, nine more uh, in a batch today. Um, So one for the Third Circuit and then a number in California for District Bench, uh, one in Maryland and two more in New Jersey, which would fill all the vacancies there. So especially the White House is setting, as we said before, priorities. Uh, If those two New Jersey nominees are confirmed, all six of the emergency vacancies will have been filled. Um, And so I think they are very determined, uh, as I've said before, as a well-oiled, very efficient machine that is moving nominees uh, out of the White House and to uh, the Judiciary Committee and then onto the floor. Uh, So we can see more, and I think Biden uh, is going to be setting records. Um, There's a very good chance that he could eclipse the most appellate judges ever appointed in the first year of a president, breaking Trump's record. He had a dozen last year, and it certainly looks like there may well be a dozen this year, if not more. And so there's a chance he could, could name 13 and set a new record.
0: Speaking of judicial emergencies, there were judicial emergencies in California, New Jersey, and Washington.
2: But Washington has had three vacancies filled. Uh, At the beginning of Biden's tenure, there were five active judgeships, vacant emergencies out of seven judgeships. And so that was a real problem for Washington state. But now they've filled three of them. There's still two more emergencies And I think is a nominee for one of them, I guess I would stress and emphasize just how effective the White House has been all along and the Judiciary Committee, especially Chair Durbin, in moving people to nomination, working with the home state senators, moving them through the committee, onto the floor, and then final debates and votes. And they're focused like a laser on that. And that's been a great success story for this administration.
0: Thanks so much for being on the show, Carl. That's Professor Carl Tobias of the University of Richmond Law School. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage.